Well, hello, everyone. I am Jay Nordlinger doing Q&A. This podcast is brought to you by Quip, the electric toothbrush. Go to getquip.com slash QA. I'll have more to say about this excellent sponsor later in the show. I'm coming to you live from New York, so to speak, uh, live to tape, that is, from a famous apartment building on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, the Ansonia. It has been home to a great many musicians over the years, including composers, Mahler, Rachmaninoff, Stravinsky, performers, Toscanini, Chalyapin, Pinza. I'm here today, yes, indeed. Yes, I'm looking at Thea Musgrave saying, yes, indeed. And I'm sitting next to Thea Musgrave, the Scottish, Scottish-American composer. And um, we really don't like to discuss age, but I'm looking at napkins, cocktail napkins that say 90th birthday. And there have been a great many uh, Thea Musgrave 90th birthday celebratory concerts and so on. So I guess the cat is out of the bag and it's okay. <laughs> Hello, Thea Musgrave. Hello. I'm afraid it's true. Can't change that. Well, it's so nice to see you. I'm, I'm going to start with a boring question, but it's not boring to me. Do you have a typical day um, or are they all different or does your day have a pattern? Well, it's been extraordinary right now because we're just back from a long trip to back to England and Scotland. So things were not normal. But my normal day is, yes, I work in the mornings. I mean, I work by work, I mean composing. Mm. When I've had breakfast, I usually go straight to my studio and I have three hours or so. It used to be longer than that, but now it's probably two, three hours every day. And I have a holiday in the afternoon. Sometimes mm. I deal with the internet and deal with, which is not a holiday, uh, dealing with mail, dealing uh, with um, paying bills and all that kind of stuff. Afternoons and evenings, I like to see friends mm. and uh, go to concerts, go out, whatever, but to be with friends. Is there music going through your head all the time or almost all the time? Or do you compartmentalize, as people say? Are you always sort of playing with notes in your head? Do you drift off, not to sleep, I mean, but sort of mentally when you're at dinner and an idea comes to you? Or? Well, it's often when I'm driving. Uh, the, well, actually, I don't drive so much anymore, not in New York. But when we're out in Los Angeles and you're driving, sometimes, you know, things float through my head. And sometimes even when I'm in bed, just about to go to sleep, I start to compose and uh, ideas float through my head, and I think, oh, that's a good one. Mustn't forget that one. And uh, so when I go to my studio in the morning, I try to remember and get it re actually written down so I don't forget. Mm. Do you usually remember um, later on? It's, it's not usually that specific. Mm. It's just a sort of a general idea of the, the drama of a piece, so it's easy to remember. Then the difficult part is actually working out the precise notes and orchestration and so on. Mm. That's the hard work. At what age did you realize that you had a musical gift, in particular a gift for composing? Did it happen in girlhood or later? Well, first of all, music. I remember my very first piano lesson, uh, aged five, I think. Uh, because I went into this room and the teacher said to me, it was an upright piano. And so she said to me, uh, come here, why don't you just stand on the chair? So I thought, that's weird. But anyway, I stood on the chair 
and then uh, facing the piano, and then she opened the lid at the top and she said, now, why don't you look down there? And then she started to play. So I saw all the hammers going as I looked down. I thought that was just incredible. Mm-hmm. And that's what hooked me to start with. I remember that so vividly. Mm-hmm. don't remember just what happened afterwards, but I remember that very first one. Um, I think I started to compose in my middle teens, but not with an idea that I should be a composer. Mm-hmm. I was going to go to medical school. And with the arrogance of a young person, I thought I was going to go to medical school and I was going to, not to be a doctor, no, no. I was going to discover the cures for cancer, for TB, AIDS hadn't happened yet, but mm. for sure that also, and so on. But music was always part of my life, and I always wanted music to be an important part of my life, even though I was going to discover all these cures. Yeah. And it so happened in Edinburgh that the music department was absolutely adjacent to the medical school, and the rest of the university was half a mile, a mile away, somewhere quite different. And I always found myself going into the music school to see what was happening. And I thought, mm. wait a minute, we better figure out what's going on here. So I talked to my piano teacher and I said, you know, I think I really want to, I think I really want to be a musician. I really, this is where my heart and passion is. And she said, well, the thing is this, if you're a doctor, and you're no good, you just get struck off the list and you don't do anybody any harm. Unfortunately, that's not like that in music. So <laughs> <laughs> I was put in what my a, place. <laughs> what a remark. Um, University of Edinburgh is such a dreamy place. Was it Dreamy? It's far too cold to be dreamy. <laughs> <laughs> dreamy looking, for sure. Um, I, I, it must have been hard to be admitted to. Good for you. You were admitted as a, as a med student. No, I was a pre-med because ah. I had done all the wrong subjects at school. I hadn't ah. done enough science. So I, was, I mean, I was busy cutting up frogs and doing chemistry and stuff. Really boring for me. Mm. Were your parents musical? They were musical. They were not musicians, but they were mm. musical, yes. Siblings? siblings? Uh, well, just halves and steps. Uh-huh. Got it. We have this expression also, in-laws and outlaws, which I like. Oh, that's good, yes. Um, so you studied the piano. Um, before we leave instruments, did you study any other instrument? Or did you sing? I sang. I don't have a good voice. But I used to sing in, 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 in choruses. Um, one big chorus, so I've sung in the B minor mass and mm. stuff like that. But also in a very small chorus, um, run by a, a fantastic guy called Ian Pitt Watson, and he had just about 16 people. But I was there, not because I had a good voice, but I was put next to a person with a good voice, and I gave them the pitch. Oh. <laughs> so she had the beauty of the voice. Very nice. I, I want to ask you about Scottish music, and by that um, I don't mean uh, classical music written by Scotsmen. I mean native Scottish music, if you will, or folk music. Um, did it mean something to you when you were growing up? Were you attached to it? Or well, was this sort of in the background? It's sort of in the background, but I knew mm. how to dance the eights and reel and the force and reel and those kind of Scottish tunes. How'd and later on, of course, I learnt, the, learnt about Burns, Burns, as we say, Rabbi Burns, and the melodies that he... Oh, I should tell you this. This is interesting. There were some wonderful ancient Scottish tunes which he researched 
They were fiddle tunes, mostly. Burns did? Burns. Hmm. And he decided they would get lost unless they had words. So he wrote the words to the tunes, which is the wrong way around. Yeah. It goes the other way. He wrote the words to the tunes to preserve them. Is that true of Auld Lang Syne? That yeah. I don't know. How do you pronounce those words, by the way, properly? Auld. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Auld Lang Syne. Huh. <laughs> Very nice. Um, I was mentioning nationality in my little introduction. Um, sounds like sort of a rude way to put it. What are you? Scottish? American? Both? I'm Scottish, mm. but I now live in America because I married an American uh, yeah. husband. And Sitting a few yards from us. I don't do yeah, the metric system. So, Sorry about that. So I I'm, I'm, have citizenship in both countries. And uh, you were a member of the uh, Boulangerie, uh, the, the studio That's of Nadia right. Boulanger. That's right. Four years. And did you, um, was it rewarding? It was fabulous. Mm. It was absolutely fabulous because I'd been tucked away in, in Edinburgh at the university and in those days, not true now, but in those days, it was sort of, um, it was small. It was a very tiny faculty. You know, the total number of students, I think, was about 30, all three years. So like 10 students per year. It's mm-hmm. a tiny, tiny um, department. I think it's probably quite different now. And in terms of music, it's true there were two orchestras there. There was the BBC Symphony and the... National SNO. Now mm. it's the RSNO, oh, Royal yeah. Scottish National Orchestra. Mm. But there was no Scottish opera. There was no Scottish chamber music. Um, the, you know the string orchestra. So it it was different. So going from a, you know, slightly sheltered um, environment to Paris was <laughs> just an incredible change. I was so green and so excited to be there. It was also quite soon after the war. So, you know, to go from a place where there was still rationing, you most people couldn't travel abroad very much because you only allowed £25 per year, which was put in your passport. You know, you weren't allowed to take out currency because things mm. were very dicey. Mm. So I had to get special permission as I was a student to, to take money because I had a scholarship to go to Paris to study. It was incredible. And then France itself, of course, was recovering from the war. German, Germans had occupied Paris, as we all know, for several years. So, you know, they were recovering and getting back. So it was an incredible atmosphere. Was the city down on its heels? No, I think it was recovering. Mm. I remember speaking with um, Elliot Carter on the occasion of his 100th birthday. Yeah, but he mm. was there in the 30s. He mm. must have been there in the 30s. And Aaron, who I also knew, was there probably in the 20s. Copeland, so you mean, that yeah. was Paris before the war. Carter told me that, that Boulanger had her students go through Bach cantatas, singing them and so on. Did you do that? Well, not in my private lessons. I had a private lesson with her once a week, but she also had what she called les mercredis. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Wednesday afternoon, she would invite some of her students, visiting people, uh, maybe other composers, somebody who's in town, and it was kind of an ensemble, and then she maybe would sing some Bach cantatas or have somebody play or have discussions, uh, things like that. So maybe that's what he was referring to. It was not exactly singing Bach cantatas as such when I was there. Did you, during your years there, did you absorb any 
French influence, compositional influence, or did that not enter into it? Not particularly. Mm. Um, I think it was more Stravinsky, because Stravinsky was a, a, a friend of Boulanger. In fact, I once met Stravinsky because she, she invited several of her students to come to a, a little reception that she was giving. So I stood right behind him and saw this bald head and a few hairs mm. going across it. <laughs> so that was exciting. I was too green and young to sort of actually have a conversation with him. Did he seem unapproachable? No, I don't think so. But I, mm. I, was, unapproaching. I was much too shy to do yeah. anything. <laughs> um, am, am I right that you did some studying with Copeland? Yeah. I, after I left Paris, I was in Paris for four years and came back to London and settled in London. And then I, I don't know quite how this happened, but I decided to go to Tanglewood, which is a summer school, as you know, and where Copeland at the time was one of the teachers. And as he had been with Boulanger, uh, I thought that would be fine. So I went for the summer up near Boston, well, in Massachusetts, to Tanglewood, and therefore I had four or five lessons with him. Was that your first visit to America? Yes, it was. Ah. So it was great. I came to New York for did a few sail, days. Did you sail, by the way? Did to, I sail? Did you sail to New York or No, far? I flew. Mm -hmm. I flew. Mm -hmm. I never have, I've never sailed <laughs> the Atlantic. I did that one time, one way. Was only. it fun? Yeah, if you got the time. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's five days or five, yeah, six days, right. isn't it? Yeah, and then yeah. you come into Southampton or something. And now they do it in luxury. So oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to try that sometime. Right. Could, could Copeland, um, could he impart what he knew? Uh, could he teach at all? You know, I don't remember very much about my lessons with him. I, I enjoyed them very much, and he was a very nice person to talk to. And I think mm. I was writing one of my earliest um, orchestral pieces. So I think he must have been very helpful with that. Mm. And then I have to tell you something. Because later on, when I began to teach, I realized how difficult it was for young people to get experience of hearing their orchestral works played and having the practical experience with, with an orchestra. Mm. And Sibelius is not the answer, in my view. I mean, wonderful though it is, it does not really show you what an orchestra can do. I'm talking about the internet process ah, right, right, of writing right. things You're down. You're not talking about the finished composer. It. Yes, yeah. yeah, and you can put clarinet and oboe on song. But it doesn't right. give you the experience of what an orchestra is really like. Mm -hmm. However, if you're Scottish, and I hope it still happens, but way back when I had just come back from Paris, a few years after that, the BBC Scottish Symphony gave me the chance to... Uh, they played some of my very early orchestral pieces. I was just starting out. Mm -hmm. And guess who was the conductor? He was the assistant conductor, in fact, Colin Davis. Oh, my gosh. That's right. Mm -hmm. He was just starting out. He was a wonderful clarinet player. Mm -hmm. And then he turned over into conducting, and there he was getting his first uh, start at that. So that was great. It gave me the practical experience of being with an orchestra and how that functions and what you have to do. Well, I'm still learning, I have to tell you. I, I have a memory of Copeland. I may not have it right. You can correct me. But I think I read that musical ideas simply stopped coming to him. And he said it was as though someone had turned off a faucet. And I believe it happened to Sibelius. I mean, the man, not, uh, not, not, yeah, yeah. not, not, not the program. Uh, so I suppose it does happen. Um, but with other composers, they keep going and going and... 
their ideas sort of outrun the time they have to write them down. Do you find that that's true of you? Well, I have to tell you something. That it's a stream that doesn't stop? Well, sometimes it does stop. Mm. And that happened to me once when I was in Paris. And so I said to Boulanger, you know, I haven't done much this week. It's very difficult. I seem to have a complete block. She said, here's what you do. Mm. And this I find very interesting. And I certainly taught my students about this idea when I began to teach. She said, you go home and every single day you write a complete piece, quite short, and here's the important bit. It does not matter how bad it is. And I thought, that's what's causing the block. You have this critic sitting on your shoulder saying, and you have an idea and the critic on your shoulder, far worse than any New York Times critic saying, Oh, that's a stupid idea. Mm -hmm. Oh, what on earth are you going to do with that? That's ridiculous. Instead of saying, well, if I did that, maybe I could do this, and then that would lead to that. And, and you know, it's, it's an attitude. So I would always say to my students developing what Boulanger told me, this critic on your shoulder, you take him to the door and you say, bye-bye, I don't need you right now. And it's always a man. Then you go on with what you're doing and you take good care not to say that's a stupid idea. You just say, oh, here's an idea. Let's just put it in, in the pool. Oh, and here's another idea. Oh, I could put that down and so on. And you get all this stuff around, various ideas. And Boulanger said, never erase anything. Always keep it, even though you don't use it. Then at some point you bring him back and you say, now let's see what we've got and what we can do with it. So I wonder if that's what happened. The critic can become so fierce that you really feel you can't do anything. Wonderful. What a great way to get out of a slump. Uh, by the way, writers of words face similar things. Well, it's the same and, uh, for writers, too. I'm sure it must be the same for them. The, the English historian Paul Johnson says, you put your head down like a rhino and just charge, even if it's no good. Yeah, yes. that's, that's, that's basically it. Well, ladies and gentlemen... We are speaking with Thea Musgrave, the composer. I'm Jay Nordlinger for Q&A. Back after this word from our sponsor. Brushing your teeth may not be the most exciting topic in the world, but we do it three times a day, don't we? Twice? And we might as well do it right. Whip makes it easy, even pleasurable, I dare say. Whip is the new electric toothbrush that costs a fraction of what bulkier brushes cost, while packing just the right amount of vibrations to clean your teeth. Whip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. When you subscribe to Quip, you get new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule. You get them every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror, and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel wherever you take your teeth. Finally, people love Quip. They were on Oprah's O-List. They were named by Time as one of the best inventions, and they are the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. Quip is backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists. Every day, hundreds of thousands of happy brushers Use Quip. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash QA right now, 
you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash QA. G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash QA. We're going to brush anyway, right? Might as well do it right and in style. Welcome back to Q&A. I'm Jay Nordlinger in the Ansonia, the fabled apartment building in New York City, Manhattan on the Upper West Side, sitting with one of its distinguished residents, Thea Musgrave, the Scottish-American composer. I wonder if you have, um, you know, I'm going to ask boring old questions about favorites, favorite this, favorite that, you know, boring old questions. Do you have favorite genres or forms to write in or will you take a concerto, an opera, a song, or a sonata, come what may? Whatever. Usually if I've just written one kind of thing, <clears throat> I don't want to write the same thing for the next work. Mm. I like to do something quite different with a new sound world. So, if I can. I an, like variety. An ancient question. I think you've written your fair share of program music. <laughs> and... <clears throat> I wonder, I wonder whether music, without words now, means anything. Of course. Tell me about that. Well, I don't even know where to start because I've written some music, although it doesn't have words, it has some kind of drama. Mm. And sometimes there are pictures, sometimes, yeah, often there are pictures, like Turbulent Landscapes is based on a series of paintings by Turner. The Seasons is based on a series of pictures I saw at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and I thought I was so excited I came back and I found uh, paintings that were appropriate, as I thought, for each season. Sometimes there may be a Greek legend or something like that. Um, but there sometimes the drama can be abstract. And like the Horn Concerto, which was written for Barry Tuckwell. Huh. And I always used to say, I say to myself, and I said to my students, Make friends with great performers because there's no way you can possibly know the ins and outs of every single instrument yeah. and, even, and certainly not the ones you don't play. So I have learned from people like Barry incredible things. And you're probably too young for Dennis Brain, but you got Barry Tuckwell. That, that I wasn't got Barry, that. but I knew Norman Del Mar, who was a wonderful conductor and who was Dennis Brain's stand partner, because he also, Norman was also a horn player. I had no idea. Yes. Oh. And Norman was furious with me because I started to write scores in C. In other words, I know horns transpose. And the parts, of course, are transposed for the horn player. But in, I always write this, the, the scores at pitch. And he was furious with me because being a horn player, if you, if you see a top F, um, you know, you should write it as a top C because it's a horn in F. Mm -hmm. And he just couldn't understand why I was being so amateurish as to write a score in C. <laughs> I hope you stuck to your guns. I'm sure you did. I'm afraid I did. <laughs> I, was, um, I was looking at your list of works and I was thinking about U.S. currency. I wonder if you can guess why. Harriet Tubman. Oh, yes. And you wrote an opera on Harriet Tubman, and she used to be on one of our bills, I believe. Not yet. Not it yet. It hasn't happened. Coming, yet. I think, 10 or 20, and that's very it's exciting. It's supposed to be the $20 bill, but it hasn't happened yet. I'd have to check my wallet. I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. It was supposed to happen much quicker. Yeah. But I wrote about her. I, I did not know her name 
But then because my husband was in charge of the Virginia Opera and I was living in Norfolk, Virginia, um, I heard about Harriet Tubman because her, the place where she was a slave was just up the eastern shore a little, a little way, and we actually want, went to, to see it. And we couldn't get close to the farm, but across the field we could see, and there was this little blue notice saying this is where Harriet Tubman mm. used to live. And a great woman. Yes, but what happened was that Peter, my husband, had just done Porgy and Bess, and I, having not been very long in America, heard all these incredible black voices. I mean, just incredible. And I thought, oh, how, ex how exciting. I would love to write something for them. And then I came across the story of Harriet. And so I did lots and lots of research. I'd write my own librettos. I like to do that. You and Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Mm. But you know why? Because I, I, I always thought I would collaborate with somebody. And when I was writing Mary, Queen of Scots, um, I came to a place where the, the, there was an aria at, at a certain moment where you go into the thoughts of the person and the, why, the way she felt about it. And it was just too long. It just was holding up the dramatic action. So I said, you know, these are great words. It's just too long. You need, you need to cut it a bit. Oh, those are my best words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought, I'm not going to deal with that. So from then on, I wrote my own, and I could just cut the words when I needed. I could change a word if that didn't sit well on the vocal line, because mm -hmm. I like words to be audible if possible. Mm -hmm. But if you write certain words too high up for the soprano, they become inaudible. You know, if you write an E vowel, there's no way a singer, a soprano, can sing E on a top A yeah. or a top G. It's not John Sutherland's fault. R. Yeah. And yeah. okay for men. Funnily enough, it's okay for men, not for women. So I like to put a nice word where it's the right vowel is on the right note, so to speak. You care whether people understand the words. Yes. How peculiar. Well, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I take a lot of trouble setting them. <laughs> well... Yeah, Musgrave, did you ever get involved in the, what you might call the compositional wars of the 20th century, Boulez versus Barber, atonality versus tonality, Darmstadt, and then, did you ever, were you involved in that, or did you sort of stay above the fray? <laughs> Not as I stayed above the fray, just below the fray. <laughs> <laughs> I decided I would use what I wanted. Yes, I've written a couple of serial pieces, um, and my great friend Richard Bennett, did it all, you know, really through most of his career. And I was very close to him, and we would sort of share works that we were in the process of writing, which I never do, have never done with anybody else, but we, we, he and I would do that. He was always serial, hmm. but it, I, it didn't suit me. So I wanted to, I, I used it from time to time. Sometimes I use works in the, on, with the octatonic scale. I like to have variety. Hmm. Yes, indeed. You remember probably the most famous title over a musical essay in the whole 20th century, infamous title, and Milton Babbitt was furious because the editor gave it that title and he didn't want it. Uh, who cares if you listen or who cares if they listen? This is a big thing. Um, I suppose some composers do care and some composers don't. They're writing for themselves or their colleagues or for posterity. And uh, other people, and the same is true of writers of prose and poetry and things, want an audience to hear it, read it, like it. Are you in that camp? Well, you write for yourself because 
you know, you look at an audience, you don't know who they are. There's no way you can know what country you're in. And even if you know the country quite well, you still don't know who's in the audience, what their wishes are. Mm. Nevertheless, you hope that what you feel very strongly will find uh, somebody's ears will hear it and, and take it in. Not for sort of mass acclaim or anything, but just that other people will understand what you're, what you're doing and what mm. you're after. Mm. Well, here's a sort of a cliched question and an embarrassing one. But the older I get, the less embarrassable I am. I, I wonder if you have favorite pieces of your own. If of, you're, do you of have, course. <laughs> of course. Um, let's see. Um, one of my very favorite pieces is the viola concerto I wrote when I was first married. Uh, my husband now has beca became a conductor, of course, and gave up the viola. But it was written for him. I'm very fond of that piece. Turbulent Landscapes I'm very fond of because I adore Turner. And when I'm in London, I always used, used to find the time to go to the Tate Gallery and, and look at those fabulous paintings again. You're, you're, um, you're a child of the British Isles. Yeah. yeah. Let's see. What else have I got? Mary, Queen of Scots, an opera, Bolivar. I wrote an opera about Simon Bolivar and written in Spanish, by the way, not because I speak Spanish, but I collaborated with somebody. And so I wrote the libretto in English and she, um, we worked together to, to make a Spanish version. I don't call it translation because we quickly found out that, um, well, just to give you an example, at one point I said, I think I had Bolivar saying, decisions made today cast a long shadow. Hmm. And I thought that was rather good. <laughs> and she said, yeah, but, you know, I can't do that in Spanish. So I said, well, you know what, let's not be exact. Let's be sort of exact. So she said, las decisiones de hoy te seguirán mañana. Decisions of today follow you tomorrow. Oh. And then listen, te seguirán mañana. Cast a long shadow. Mm. You see the rhythm yeah, you keep your and meter the vowels are good mm. and the consonants are good. So we worked like that. So it's it's not an exact translation. It's a, it's a version. Mm. And I loved doing that. That was, that was a lot of fun. And sometimes I would change my version to match hers and then vice versa. So it was a very, very interesting process. I would think. I, uh, I want to ask you about your favorite composers, but I think I'll put it this way. Could you just give us a few composers you especially admire or have grown closer to? I myself go through phases or, 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 or jags. Yeah, you know. sure. And I wonder if lately there are composers you're feeling especially close to or feel the need to listen to. Well, I, I was very fond of Berio and what he did, um, the Sinfonia. Is it called Sinfonia? with the, the Swingle Singers. Mm. Is that the word? I can't remember. Fabulous. Did you ever Very, meet him? Yes, I did mm. meet him. Mm. Berio and? Stravinsky. Mm. Bartok, who I never met. And Britton, of course, who I did did know. Mm. Um, such clarity uh, of and, and wonderful invention of, of his orchestrations. Can I ask you a question about Stravinsky? You know how we say of... Um, not, not we, people who know about art, that's not me, say of Picasso that he had periods, blue period, rose period. Stravinsky, he had these periods, didn't he? Yeah. Full-blown romanticism and primitivism and 
and atonality, serialism, and neoclassicism. Right. Do you do you like him through all of that? It was I a was first attracted model. to the very earliest pieces. I mean, the Rite mm-hmm. of Spring and and all that were written way back pre World mm-hmm. War One, right? Yeah, yeah. The nineteen thirteen yes. stuff yes. like that. That's what first attracted me to it. But then it was interesting to see the later works uh, and and how he was dealing with serialism and, and mm. so on. That, that was interesting. I, I don't know that I responded emotionally in quite the same way, however. Mm. And Bartok, uh, let's not forget Bartok. Yeah. The quartets mm. and some of the orchestral pieces. I mean, what an ear and what... And what gave me the idea also of using, he used um, melodies, tunes from his own country from time to time. Yes. Which also gave me the idea I could use Scottish tunes. Mm. <laughs> may I ask you to elaborate on something? It, it, may, it may be tricky or, or a bit mystical. You said, what an ear, referring to Bartok. What does that mean? A, sort of a, a gift for, a knack for, for sound and how sounds Imagination for color, mm. which I think, you know, other pe- well, other people do, of course, but I think his, his was extraordinary. Mm. And what he did with string quartets, I mean, a very familiar sound, but what he did yeah. with, with them. You, you wrote a concerto for orchestra. Yeah. Was it hard to do that with his shadow over you, so to speak? Because a concerto for orchestra is almost synonymous with him. Please. No, mine is different mm. because it was based on a dream. I've, I've told this story many times, but I can't resist telling you. Please, again. I haven't heard it. It's new to me. I remember it as clear today as when it happened, which was around 1965, 1966, mm. way back then. I had just started to conduct and, you know, was learning, you know, what you could do, what you couldn't do and how to do it and, and so on and so on. So, There I was asleep, and I was conducting a big orchestra. And one of the players suddenly got up and kind of defied me. So I kind of tried to get the other brass up to shut him up and sort of yelled at him and wouldn't do it, and he kept on. And then I woke up, and then I started to laugh. Mm. And that night, the next night, I mean, uh, Mm. I went out with some friends. We were going to a concert. We had dinner somewhere in London, and I told them this dream. So we all had a good laugh. The next morning... I kid you not, it was the very next morning there was a letter arrived from the city of Birmingham in England. Mm. Would I write an orchestra piece? Mm. So I thought, I know exactly what I'm going to write. So what happens in the concerto for orchestra is it starts off and it builds and then at a certain moment the clarinet player stands up and does something quite, a kind of cadenza. Mm. Not following the conductor, so the conductor says, you know... But he then does it again. And then what was worse, he starts suggesting themes for other solos in the orchestra. He suggests the themes that they might play. So they stand up and join in. Not conducted by the conductor, but led by the cues given by this clarinet player. So in the end, the conductor, therefore, is not conducting them. He's conducting the rest of the orchestra. And then in the end... He gets the whole brass to their feet, and then they have to shut up. And you wrote this in? Yes. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, you, 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 you wrote in the defiance yeah. from your dream. Absolutely. Fantastic. And then what happened, I was asked to conduct the Philadelphia Orchestra 
for the American premiere of this piece. And Ormandy said to me, can you, can you put this together in two hours? So I said, yes, but could I have six players from the orchestra, the clarinet and the other five or four, I forget, uh, for half an hour before the, before the two hours? He said, yes. So I came to the rehearsal and the players were there and sort of a little suspicious. You know, we were a major orchestra. We don't do sectionals. And I said, you know, I'm only asking you to be here because you defy the conductor and you do something quite independent. And I thought we should just show you, I thought I should just show you what happens and how this works. So I said, you play this freely and here's what I'm going to be doing. So just so that you know, I'm not conducting you but I'm conducting the rest of the orchestra. You know, technically we knew exactly what was going on, which happened quite quickly. When the rest of the orchestra came in, good sight read the whole thing. They were <laughs> fabulous. Mm. They were absolutely fabulous. They got the idea right away, and so it was easy to put it together in the two hours. I have to ask you, I've asked many people over the years, was Ormandy cordial to you? If he was, you were one of the happy few. He was cordial. Wow. He was cordial, but he, uh, yeah, no, you met him. My husband met him. We're pointing <laughs> uh, to Peter Mark when, here. When was he I was cordial doing, to you, Peter? He'd given me the two hours. I made the mistake of calling him Eugene. <laughs> he called me Eugene. <laughs> <laughs> Probably deserved it. Well, I there's a question I like to ask. It's a... It's a two-part question, but I also think of a phrase that my, my late friend Bill Buckley would sometimes use. This question's like Peking duck requires 24 hours notice. Uh, but I'd like to ask, uh, are there composers you consider underrated, underrated by the world, uh, or, or for that matter, overrated? Do you have any sleepers, so to speak, or, or um, diamonds in the rough? It would have been better to give you notice for this question. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that mm. because I have my personal composers that I like a lot. And I mean, I think Berio should be played much more. Mm. Um, and I think that the music world is going through a very difficult time because of the way the funding works, the way that the internet has kind of taken over. Everything's in turmoil. And I think that educationally, kids are not learning about music, or they're not playing in orchestras, they're not singing in choruses the way I did as a kid. Not that they shouldn't do the internet, not at all, one has to mm. keep up, but I think we're losing out on other things. This is a digression, but nevertheless, it. it's important. Mm. And my great friend, Nicholas Daniel, has just started a, a project in London. He calls it, Every Child a Musician. And what he wants to do is to get money to get instruments, musical instruments, into the schools so the kids can come and say, oh, I'd like to play the tuba, or oh, I'd like to play a violin, whatever. And they have a chance because they would have an instrument that they could use mm. and learn and have it, not that they become professional musicians necessarily, but just that music would become an important and enjoyable part of their lives. So we're losing out a little bit. And also, it's, uh, I see lots of things written, um, you know, on the Internet, how music can actually develop the way you think and enhance your skills. 
mm. not in music, but just to do other things. I think because when you write music, you have to learn how to do two things at once. Anybody who does counterpoint learns how to do two things ah, at once. I see what you mean, yes. <laughs> well, I, I've spent a long time talking and thinking and writing about this question of classical music and its health. And I often quote the late piano scholar Charles Rosen, who said, the death of classical music is perhaps its oldest tradition. In every generation, there are those who worry about it. And so I cite that, and yet I must say that I, I'm a bit worried because of this question of early education. Mm -hmm. I, and the internet ought to be a bonanza. Almost every note ever written or thought of or played or sung is at a person's fingertips for free. I don't know that that's necessarily a help. It might be too easy in a way. You know, we used to save up for recordings and he had enough money to get this recording by Bruno Walter. And then next month he had enough for a clemperer. And it really meant something. Yeah, that's important. And, but I think it's also important that people have the chance to make music. Yeah. I mean, when I was growing up, I, I was a very bad viola player, but I nevertheless played in quartets mm -hmm. with other people who were equally bad. We had a great time. We didn't want any audience. And I have a friend in London who's not professional at all. In fact, she's 93 or something. She regularly plays quartets with her friends. Huh. That doesn't happen very much anymore. I mean, uh, amongst musicians, but I mean, I'm talking about ordinary people having this chance. I'm not sure it happens all that much among musicians. Um, you, you would know better. They're too busy. I have just a few more, about three more. You know what everyone today calls gender? We used to call it sex. Um, I, I wonder if it makes you burn a little to be referred to in print as a, a female composer. Or, you get or, used to it. I, I think it's meaningless. You know, when you're composing, you're a human being. And, and that's what's important. And, and then how would you fit in gay composers or lesbian composers? Where does that play? Mm. It's ridiculous. However... There is a thing of how society deals with, you know, that women have jobs or don't have jobs, and it's different in different countries and different societies and different centuries. So that also plays its part, but that's what the thing, whether it's nature or nurture, that's nurture. Mm -hmm. And I think that every human being has the possibility of being an artist, whether it's, you know, painting or writing music or writing words. It's a human activity. There are these birthday celebrations and references. I wonder if age is an advantage in composition. Uh, do you know more? Does experience help? No, because every work, every new work is a new adventure. So you have new challenges uh -huh. and, <laughs> and new problems to solve, how to, how to deal with this and that. Um, otherwise, you're just writing the same old stuff. Hmm. Do you think you would have been a good doctor and scientific discoverer? I have no idea. Probably not. <laughs> I don't know about that. It's such an honor to meet you. Um, yeah, I, have to, I don't know whether to credit Scotland with this charm, but it comes from somewhere. Uh, I'm Jay Nordlinger for Q&A, sitting in this beautiful apartment uh, with friends and uh, thank you all. Until next time, bye-bye.
Ricochet. Join the conversation.